Exodus chapter 26. In our last lesson, we studied verses 1 through 14, and we gave you the four coverings of the tabernacle. And I'll get you to look at those, and then we'll pick up with verse 20, uh, verse 15, and, and give you the construction uh, or the framework of the tabernacle, beginning with verse uh, 15. But let's look at verse uh, 1. It says, uh, Moreover, thou shalt make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen, and blue and purple and scarlet, with cherubims of cunning work, thou shalt make them. And there you have the first covering. Inside would be the ceiling of the tabernacle. If you look at that picture, you can see that there are layers of coverings over the uh, tabernacle proper. Inside there, where all that uh, furniture is, the the candlestick and these various table of showbread inside. And there's a, four different layers of coverings. And the first one inside, like the ceiling, is the one we just read of. It's fine twine linen with all this embroidery work on it. And then in verse 7, Thou shalt make curtains of goat's hair to be a covering upon the tabernacle. And we studied that last week. That's the second covering over the tabernacle. And then down in verse 14, it says... <clears throat> and thou shalt <clears throat> make a covering for the tent of ram skins dyed red, and a covering above of badger skins. So you have the fine linen covering, first of all. Then you have the goat's hair covering. Then you have ram skins dyed red. And then you have over that badger skins. And that makes the complete covering for the tabernacle. And we gave you the meaning of those things last week, and I'll just brief those that are, were not here. The first one speaks of righteousness, the linen. Inside the tabernacle is typical of Christ's righteousness that we have inside the Lord Jesus Christ. And that second one, the goat's hair covering, uh, speaks of Christ as our sin bearer. We could not have Christ's righteousness if he did not bear our sins. And then the third covering, the ram skins dyed red, speaks of, of course, substitution and sacrifice. Christ's devotedness unto death. So he had to die in order. You know, I'm trying to give you these layers and bring you a picture as well as a message at the same time. The ram skin, the third covering, dyed red. Christ had to die before our sins could be forgiven. And he had to be devoted unto death. And then on the outside, the badger skins over that speaks of Christ's humiliation. The old uh, dingy-looking, dirty badger skins, uh, not very comely, not very uh, appealing. And from the outside of the tabernacle, which would be outside of Jesus Christ, which uh, the tabernacle typifies, outside of Christ, there is no beauty, as uh, Isaiah said, that we should desire Him. The Bible says He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from Him. And so, uh, for the unbeliever and for the sinner outside, he says, you people, you go to church and you find all this that you claim to be so happy and all. All we can see in Christ is this humiliation, this unattractiveness. But only as you see that the ram skins were dyed red and Christ died, and that He died for our sins, the goat's hair covering, and then inside, when you get inside of Christ, you see the the fine linen with cherubims wrought with fine needlework of blue and purple and scarlet and all this fine embroidery work. And so inside of Christ you see His glory. But you don't see that on the outside. That's why a lot of times, you know, 
uh, people that are not Christians, they'll say, what do you Christians find? It, it's as if you're taking all the joy and all the happiness out of life because you became a Christian. No, you're coming inside where you see all the glory and all the purity and all the righteousness and all the blessedness that is yours to be had in, in what Jesus offers. And that's what you're seeing. So you can see the difference of the attitudes, can't you? Now then, let's pick up. We, we taught that last week, so we won't go into detail on it again. And we'll pick up uh, with verse uh, uh, 15, if you'll notice. And we'll read concerning the, the uh, construction of the tabernacle and the framework of the tabernacle out of boards. So let's look at verse 15. In chapter 26 of Exodus, verse 15, And thou shalt make boards for the tabernacle of shittim wood, standing up. Ten cubits shall be the length of a board, and a cubit and a half shall be the breadth of one board. A cubit, of course, is about 18 inches, so that makes the boards about 15 feet high. Uh, ten cubits. So it would be about uh, one and a half feet per cubit. And so that would make them about 15 feet high. Actually, the tabernacle was a cube, and so it was 15 feet high and 15 feet. It was 10 cubits in every direction, so it would be 15 feet in every direction. Uh, the first part was 15 by 30. The second, would, we're talking about feet now, not cubits. And the second part was 15 by 15. So the first part of the tabernacle, you can see a division there. Look at the first part. Uh, where the veil is, was twice as large as that back part. The first part is called the holy place, and the back part that you see the smaller is called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. It had two different kinds of names. It's either the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. And uh, anyway, let's continue to read the construction here. It says, two ten, verse 17, Two tenons shall there be in one board, one set in one against, uh, in order against another. Thus shalt thou make for all the boards of the tabernacle. Thou shalt make the boards for the tabernacle, twenty boards on the south side southward. Thou shalt make forty sockets of silver under the twenty boards, two sockets under one board for his two tenons, and two sockets under another board for his two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle on the north side, there shall be twenty boards, and there forty sockets of silver, two sockets under one board, and two sockets under another board. For the sides of the tabernacle westward, thou shalt make six boards. And two boards shalt thou make for the corners of the tabernacle in the two sides. They had two corner boards. And they shall be coupled together beneath, and they shall be coupled together above. The head of it uh, unto one ring, thus shalt thou, shall it be for them both. They shall be for the two corners. And they shall uh, be eight boards and their sockets of silver, sixteen sockets, two sockets under one board and two sockets under another board. And thou shalt make bars of shittim wood, five for the boards of the one side of the tabernacle, five bars for the boards of the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards of the side of the tabernacle uh, for the two sides westward. That's the back of it. And the middle bar in the midst of the board shall reach from end to end, and thou shalt overlay the boards with gold and make their rings of gold for the places for the bars. And thou shalt overlay the bars with gold. And thou shalt rear up the tabernacle according to the fashion thereof which was showed thee in the mount. Let's stop reading there. That last statement, God says, you'll raise it up, said to Moses, according to the pattern showed thee in the mount. God was very exacting on everything that he wanted done. 
He wanted everything done according to His plan and pattern. And do you think if God was that strict about the Old Testament and the construction of the tabernacle for Israel, that He's any less concerned about the order of the things that go on in the church today? You think He wants the church to just go haphazardly along and not have any plan or purpose or construction to it? God certainly does want that plan to be carried out. Jesus laid out in the Great Commission that we do all things according to what He has commanded us. And He says, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so, I want you to see then this construction. If you notice these boards, they were made in verse... uh, 15 of shittim wood, or actually another word is acacia wood, the most durable kind of woods. In verse 29 it says they were covered, overlaid with gold. Now you have the wood speaks of the humanity of Christ, and the gold speaks of the deity of Christ. By the way, if you want a text for all your study of the tabernacle, look at the book of Psalms, if you will, chapter 29, Psalm 29. And I want to give you one verse, and it's verse 9. It says, The voice of the Lord maketh the hinds to calve, and discovereth the forest. Now, the last statement. And in his temple doth every one speak of his glory. And the marginal reference for that about his temple, every whit of it uttereth his glory. You see that? Psalm 29, verse 9. That in the temple, which was built after the same order of the tabernacle, that everything speaks of His glory. That it's all typical. In fact, in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews chapter 9, you'll find especially that all of these things pointed to Christ and His sacrifice and the things that we find that Jesus did for us and His glory. So in the temple, in the tabernacle, every bit uttereth His glory. If you have a marginal reference, that's what it will say in that verse of Scripture. So when you look back and study the tabernacle, you're going to find that all of these things have to do with the, uh, some, somewhat, in some way, typify Christ and His work and our connection with Him in that work. What it means to us, I should say. So when we study the framework of the tabernacle, you have the 30 cubits. Uh, which would be 45 feet in length, and the 10 cubits, uh, which would be 15 uh, feet wide and 15 feet high. So you have a 15 by 15 by 45 as far as feet are concerned. It's really 10 cubits by 30 cubits, the whole construction of the whole thing. And it's construction of 48 boards of acacia wood, 20 boards on each side, six across the back, and two corner boards. And each board covered with pure gold. And there were two tenons, two things that were mortised down into, to, like this, tenons or like fingers going down into sockets of silver. And the sockets of silver was the foundation for the tabernacle. And they weighed about 90 pound weight, each socket of silver. So under one board you would have 180 pounds of strength of pure silver for a foundation. You ever built anything on solid blocks? Well, these were the boards were mortised in these in order to hold them secure. By the way, I might give you something about the sockets of silver. We've just been reading about two sockets of silver under one board. If you look in uh, Exodus 38, verse 27, it says, And of the hundred talents of silver were cast the sockets of the sanctuary... 
a hundred talents would be about 9,000 pounds. That's a pretty good foundation for a building that size, isn't it? Especially a tabernacle or a tent with boards uh, fastened into these sockets of silver. So 9,000 pounds. It says, Of the hundred talents of silver were cast the sockets of the sanctuary and the sockets of the veil, and hundred sockets of the hundred talents, a talent for a socket. Now then, I want to give you another verse of Scripture. In uh, Exodus chapter 36, let's see if I can find it. I wanted to show you where that this was taken uh, for the, of the redemption money. Well, maybe I didn't find it. But anyway, maybe I can find it for you. Of the sockets of silver. Uh, Exodus 30. Maybe I can get it there. Verses 11 through 16. Exodus 30, verses 11 through 16. Look at this. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, When thou, hast taken, when thou takest the sum of the children of Israel after their number, then shall they give every man a ransom for his soul unto the Lord, when thou numberest them, that there be no plague among them, when thou numberest them. You see that? This they shall give, every one that passeth among them that are numbered, half shekel after the shekel of the sanctuary. So this, all of this ransom money was taken from the children of Israel. And in chapter 38, verse 25, it tells us, And the silver of them that were numbered of the congregation was an hundred talents and a thousand seven hundred and threescore and fifteen shekels after the shekel of the sanctuary. And this was given to make these sockets, as we read in verse 27, for the foundation of the tabernacle. So the whole point is this, that silver represents redemption. And that the structure of the tabernacle was set upon uh, a foundation that was typical of redemption. And the boards being overlaid with gold and being made of uh, acacia wood you have the humanity and the deity of Christ and so that our salvation everything there speaks of our salvation and what we have in Christ is on a solid foundation of redemption by the Lord Jesus Christ who was both human and divine and you know the devil the first thing he tries to attack is and is, his constant is concentrated upon the deity of Christ, the denial of the deity of Christ, of his virgin birth, of his sacrificial death, and his atoning death, and his bodily resurrection, and all of these things. Now, go back to the uh, 26th chapter again quickly, and pick up in verse 31, if you will. And thou shalt make a veil of blue, and purple, and scarlet, and fine twine linen, of cunning work. With cherubims shall it be made. See the veil now on your picture there? That center part where there's four pillars. And this is the veil. Thou shalt hang it upon four pillars of shittim wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold upon the four sockets of silver. That's where the other four sockets of silver are is under these four pillars in that veil. And this speaks of redemption also. So that you could not enter into the presence of God. There are four pillars back here. And the veil hung upon it. And God's presence was behind that veil. 
Because there was the Ark of the Covenant. And God says, I will meet with you there. And my presence will be there from above the mercy seat. And the only way would be because of the redemption. These two, these four uh, columns of uh, rested upon sockets, silver sockets, which would speak of the fact that only through redemption could you enter into the very presence of God. And if you remember when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says the veil of the temple, through his redemptive work, the veil of the temple was rid in the midst from the top to the bottom, and then there was access into the divine presence through what? The death of Christ and through his redemptive work. And so if you have the 26th chapter, it says, Thou shalt hang up the veil under the tashes that, verse 33, just hold your place there, we'll read right on down. Thou shalt hang up the veil under the tashes that thou mayest bring in thither within the veil the ark of the testimony, and the veil shall divide unto you between the holy place and the most holy place. See that? It will be a division between the holy place and the most holy place. That's what we just said uh, when previous to our announcement of describing the tabernacle. And thou shalt put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. Remember we studied the ark in our last lesson. The very first lesson was about the ark, right? And it was inside. Remember it was an oblong chest. It was made of acacia wood. It was overlaid with gold. It had upon the top for a lid or a covering what is called the mercy seat. And there were two cherubims of gold overshadowing the mercy seat like this, looking inward to each other and looking downward to the top of that lid. And no wonder they were so curious. They looked in a curious manner. As the real cherubim in heaven and the seraphim in heaven would look upon God's work. And no wonder they uh, looked at each other and down upon that mercy seat because the, the high priest brought in once a year the blood from that brazen altar. Look out there at the brazen altar. See it? See it out in the front of that gate? Right at the gate entrance? He brought the blood of that brazen altar and sprinkled it upon that mercy seat. And we preached uh, last week, I believe it was, about, about which things angels desire to look into. My, what a curious sight that would be. These were only symbols, these uh, cherubim of gold. But the real cherubim and seraphim and angels in heaven would also wonder at the blood being sprinkled on the mercy seat and the value of that, wouldn't they? And take notice of it. And Peter puts it in this way. He said, as far as our salvation and redemption in Christ, which things the angels desire to look into. That they're curious is to see what this great purpose and plan of redemption is that the prophets spoke of and that all of this symbolized back in the Old Testament. We preached on that last Sunday morning. All right, let's go on and read down here. Verse 35. And thou shalt set the table without the veil. See the table of showbread on one side there? And then the golden candlestick. Look. And the, go- and the candlestick over against the table on the other side of the tabernacle toward the south. And thou shalt put the table on the north side. So you have those two pieces. See that you have it marked. The table of showbread and the golden candlestick pointed out in the, in the front part of the sanctuary there. And thou shalt make an hanging for the door. This is the very entrance of the tabernacle. We'll call it out here where our door is. Let me let this church picture what we're looking at. There's the door. There's where those five pillars are. Right at the door. 
Here's the, here's the four pillars and the veil. Here's the table of showbread. Here's the communion table. Here's the golden candlestick on this side. Here's the light. See, we've got it arranged basically the same way, only these are not the same things. But you see what I'm talking about? So on one side you have the table of showbread, on the other side the golden candlestick. Right up here you have the altar of incense. See the altar of incense in front? See, there's a kind of an altar looking there. And then inside the veil you have the Ark of the Covenant. And so it's arranged basically like this building is. So we'll call that out there when we're talking about the door. We're reading verse uh, 36, the entrance of this building. Thou shalt make an hanging for the door of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twine linen wrought with needlework. And thou shalt uh, make for the hanging five pillars of shittim wood and overlay them with gold. And their hooks shall be of gold. And thou shalt cast five sockets of brass for them. Do you notice something? Look at verse 32. The four pillars back here have four sockets of silver inside here. Out there at the entrance, there's five sockets that these pillars stand on at the entrance of the door of brass. Now, silver speaks of redemption, but brass of judgment. Before we could have redemption, we had to have judgment, right? Christ, uh, our sins had to be judged in the person of Christ for Him to be an interest for us so that we would obtain the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus. See, everything that you study about the tabernacle is in perfectly divine and doctrinal order. Because even this brazen altar out here, you see that brazen altar? That's the only way of entrance into the presence of God. You had to come by the way of that brazen altar and there had to be sacrifices offered out there on that brazen altar which is typical of the cross of Calvary and the offering that was offered thereon, whether it would be a goat for a sin offering or a lamb for an offering or a bullock or whatever and the, shed, the blood that was shed is typical of Christ and His death on the cross. And we'll get into that in the 27th chapter. So that the only way of approach into God's presence was by way of that brazen altar. And then there's so much significance in the brazen labor. There's a labor there of brass as well. And then the entrance into the tabernacle through that one door. As we look at verse 36, Thou shalt make an hanging for the door. You know, Jesus is the door. If you look at the picture, He's not only the door into the, the tabernacle, but He's the, the way, the gate out here in front before you even get anywhere. He is the way, the truth, and the life, right? So you have to come through the gate there in the front of that uh, court uh, construction. You'll see a gate with four pillars there in the center. And you have to come by the way of Christ before you can enter through the door. So he says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. By the way, if you want to write way in front of this gate out here. Let me try to give you something doctrinally, progressively. You have that little plan. You see where those four pillars are for, or four uh, hangings are for the gate right, in, right at the beginning of your picture before you get to that brazen altar. You see four kind of a shaded three places and there's four pillars or four staves there. That's the way. You might write way there 
And then when you come to this uh, door over here at the tabernacle, you might write the truth. And then when you get back behind that veil, you might put the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father. God's presence was inside there. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So this was the only way of approach for any man. And in the Old Testament, there's one man that approached that way for all of Israel. And that was the high priest. And on the Day of Atonement, he confessed over the head of a, of a goat for sin offering, all the sins, all the iniquities, and all the transgressions of all the children of Israel. And the, there was one goat that was sacrificed and the blood was shed. And he came in and he uh, made atonement upon that mercy seat back there. Not only for his sins, first of all, but for all of the sins of all the children of Israel. And when he came back out, they knew that, that he had met with God for them, that their sins were rolled away for another year at a time, on a yearly basis. Let me give you something. Hebrews 9, 12. Listen carefully. It says, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, speaking of Christ, he entered in once into that holy place, having obtained yearly redemption for us? No. Having obtained eternal redemption for us. So when Jesus entered in that holy place, not literally here on earth, but it's a pattern of the heavens, when He entered into heaven, having shed His blood on the cross and sprinkled it on the mercy seat in heaven, not literally, but according to the symbol of the high priest, that he sprinkled it on the mercy seat in heaven, he obtained what kind of redemption for us? Eternal. And so he'll never have to do it again. The priest had to go repeat this year a year at a time. But Jesus, by one offering, hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Look at the, far, uh, the greater value of the redemption that we have in what Jesus has done and what the Old Testament priests could do for Israel. And then, symbolically, they, he did it for uh, pointing forward to their redemption in Christ. So, ultimately, all of Israel was looking forward to a time that the priests would not have to go in anymore and, and obtain a yearly forgiveness for their sins, but would have eternal redemption. And they were looking forward to the death of Christ, that perfect sacrifice, just as you and I look back to it because it's already completed. And they were saved by faith looking forward to it, just as we're saved by faith looking back to Christ and His death on the cross. And uh, let's read the last verse here, verse 37. It says, And thou shalt make for the hanging five pillars of shittim wood, and overlay them with gold, and their hooks shall be of gold. And thou shalt cast five sockets of brass. We spoke of the brass in, in connection and or opposition or contrast to the silver a minute ago. The brass and the silver. The brass speaks of judgment. The silver speaks of redemption. There, were, there was brass under these front pillars and there was silver under the second set of pillars uh, you see in the construction of that tabernacle. I wish and I hope that you can see this half as plainly as I can. I know it's, uh, to me it's just like a beautiful picture that's so clear that I have no problem with it. But to try to convey it to you is, I'm sure, another problem. But if you'll follow through with me, I believe you'll get the whole thing. 
And I think that I'm trying to explain it so that you are able to grasp it as we go along. And it's so great of a message in it. All the gospel of the grace of God, of salvation through the shed blood of Christ, and all of the righteousness of God that's ours in Christ is seen in this tabernacle. Redemption by blood, redemption by sacrifice, uh, the cross of Calvary, that brazen... If, if this brazen altar out here is where the sacrifices for sin were made, and Christ died for our sins and became our sacrifice for sins, then this brazen altar must speak of what? Calvary's cross, right? It must speak of Calvary's cross, where Jesus died for our sins. And so you can see all of these are symbols, and there's a great message of truth in them. By the way, I stated in our last lesson that it's impossible to understand the book of Hebrews without knowing something about this Old Testament and this uh, tabernacle. People say, well, why waste your time studying the tabernacle? Do you want to understand the New Testament? You say, yes, I want to understand the New Testament, but preacher, what are you doing back there in the Old Testament? I just want to study the New Testament. You can't study the New Testament without studying the Old Testament. Someone said, oh, yes, I can. All right, let me give you something. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9. We'll see if you can. Hebrews chapter 9. Notice what it says here. Verse 1. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. You say, well, I'm just studying the New Testament. I'm studying the book of Hebrews. Well, now, what's that all about? If you don't know anything about a sanctuary and the first covenant and how it was pictured, look, verse 2. For there was a tabernacle made. You say, well, I never heard about a tabernacle. I'm just studying the New Testament. You see how foolish people would be? They say, well, what about... Well, I'm studying the New Testament. Well, what, what about this tabernacle? See? For there was a tabernacle made. The first wherein was the candlestick. This is what we've been teaching you. The candlestick and the table and the showbread. See that picture? Which is called the sanctuary. Would you understand that without some knowledge of the tabernacle that I've been trying to teach you? You wouldn't understand what, it, what uh, the writer of Hebrews was talking about. You would absolutely be in the dark if you did not know something about what I've trying to, uh, been trying to teach you. Have you ever heard people say, I did, I'm just a New Testament person? Well, if you're a New Testament person, you're an Old Testament person. Uh, Paul says in Romans 15, verse 4, Now listen carefully. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning... You say, well, is that, that's in the New Testament, Romans 15, 4. That we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures, because the New was not given yet. Paul was writing to the Romans, and it was not yet cataloged as Scripture. Right? So he says, what sort of things were written aforetime, he's talking about all the Old Testament, were, was written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, all the Old Testament Scriptures, might have hope. And if it was written for our learning, and it stated that in the New Testament, in order to learn what the New Testament's all about, you're going to have to study the Old Testament. So you find people, look, at you still have Hebrews? This may be a little off track, but we'll go ahead with it. Hebrews chapter 9, it says in verse 3, And after the second veil, you say, well, what's that all about? I'm just studying the New Testament. The tabernacle which is called the holiest of all. What's he talking about? 
Well, see, if you're in on what I've been teaching you, you'll know what he's talking about, right? You'll say, well, Brother Joyce told, told me about a tabernacle back there and the first part was the sanctuary and behind that veil was called the holiest of all. And yeah, I know what he's talking about. Where'd you get it? Got it from the study of the Old Testament, right? You got it from the study of the tabernacle. And it says, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant over laid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. These three things were in that Ark of the Covenant behind this veil and they are representative of a lot of things. First of all, there was the golden pot that had manna, which represented the fact that God fed the children of Israel all during their wilderness wanderings with manna. There was Aaron's rod that budded, speaking of life, whereas that of the uh, Egyptians could not bud. It was, it was just a dead rod, so to speak. And then there was what? The two tables of the law kept in that ark. Now then, those two tables represent the law being kept in Christ. That ark is a picture of Christ. And how have we kept the law? Through Jesus Christ. Because He's kept it for us. We haven't kept it, but Jesus kept it. Jesus said, you, you have been given the law and none of you have kept it. Did you know Jesus said that? He said, to those Jews, none of you have kept it. Well, where it is kept in Christ. Now then. That ark typifies the fact that Jesus perfectly kept and fulfilled all the law. And it speaks of the fact that if we're going to keep the law, we have to do it through what Christ has done for us. And we have to accept the fact that we have broken it, but Christ has kept it, and therefore we're justified in the sight of God and we walk uh, as the Lord would have us to walk. Romans chapter 8 is good on this because it tells us this. The first part of Romans chapter 8. Verse 3 and 4, it says, For what the law, now listen, for what the law could not do, could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, that means a sacrifice for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, now carefully, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And then Galatians 3.13 says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law because He became being made a curse for us. So He's redeemed us from His curse. He's perfectly kept it. And that's why you have the two tables of the covenant, the two tables of stone of the law, put in the ark, which is symbolical of Christ. We gave you last week three arcs in Scripture, didn't we? The ark of Noah, the ark of bulrushes, and the ark of the covenant. The ark of Noah sheltered from God's wrath. Noah and all of his family were sheltered from God's wrath. The ark of bulrushes sheltered baby Moses from Satan's assaults. And the ark of the covenant shelters the Christian, the believer, from the condemnation of the law. And they, these are the only three things that can really harm us. Did you know? The wrath of God, or the assaults of Satan, or the penalty or the condem, con, condemnation of the law, and these are the only things that could harm us. And God has provided a relief and redemption from everything that would harm us in the ark, in the Lord Jesus Christ.
Someone says, aren't you afraid? Perfect love casteth out fear, for fear hath tormented. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Every fear that we have of, of death or of the future is because we are not perfectly trusting in what Jesus has done for us. Now, I'll admit we all have them, don't we? Because we're all human. But on the other hand, if we can develop and progress to the place that we say, Lord, I know that you have done all for me. I'm not in danger of, of uh, the wrath of God because you have stood between me and God's wrath. And I'm not in danger of Satan's assault because you have protected me from the onslaughts of Satan. And I'm not in uh, under the condemnation of the law because you've redeemed me from its curse. Then what have I to fear? Perfect love casts without fear. And when we come to the place that we thoroughly, completely, and totally trust what Jesus has done for us, instead of trusting what we are ourselves or putting any trust in ourselves, we'll find that that fear diminishes. The more we trust God in His completed work, in Christ's completed work, the less we'll fear of anything now or hereafter. Someone says, I'd be afraid. I'd be afraid to go out into eternity. Well, I would too if it wasn't for Jesus. Wouldn't you? Sure would. I don't know what's beyond those doors of death any more than you do. But I take it from what God has said and that my security is in Christ. And the Bible says He's entered in for us into the veil. He's already gone through the valley of death for us. And He's promised that He will go with us. And He says... Uh, that He delivered us from the wrath to come, so there's no wrath to come for us, right? And He's given us eternal life. And He says we're going to be with Him in heaven. And He says we're going to have a certain amount of rewards according to our works. So what do we have to fear? And yet we fear because we're human. But on the other hand, the more we rest in the Lord and the more we come to believe and trust, the less we will fear. Well, I'll give you enough there in Hebrews 9 to show you that you must, and that's only a part of it. You could read on down the next few verses and see that it would be absolutely necessary to study what we're talking about in the Old Testament. Look at chapter 27 of Exodus. And thou shalt make an altar of shittim wood. Now look here. Uh, five cubits long and five cubits broad. An altar shall be four square, and the height thereof shall be three cubits. And you have the description of that altar. Uh, in verse uh, 2, the last part, Thou shalt overlay it with brass. There were instruments for that uh, uh, brazen altar. In verse 3, the latter part, Thereof thou shalt make of brass all of these vessels and everything. And then on down in verse 4, A grade of network of brass. And then it says, The net shall thou shalt make uh, four brazen rings. So notice brass, brass, brass all throughout. So that's why it's called a brazen altar of sacrifice. Uh, if you follow it on down, you'll find it uh, in verse 5, Thou shalt put under it the compass of the altar beneath and, thou, and that the net may be even in the midst of the altar. And thou shalt make staves for the altar, staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with brass. Now, these staves were to bear, to carry it. You'll see the staves in the picture that they carried this brazen altar with these staves that went through it. It was a solid construction of wood overlaid with brass in order to have animal sacrifices that were sacrificed thereon. And so that brazen altar 
speaks of Christ on the cross of Calvary. The sacrifices, of course, of Christ and the altar itself of the cross of Calvary. In verse 9, Thou shalt make the court of the tabernacle. You see this court round about on your picture? This fence, so to speak? Thou shalt make the court of the tabernacle for the south side southward. And it says there will be hangings for the court of fine twine linen. And it tells in verse 10 there uh, and the twenty pillars thereof and their twenty sockets shall be of brass. The hooks and the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. You see that picture around the tabernacle, that fence? Now look at it. The bottom of those pillars were brass. The top, the fillets of the top was of silver. You know, you have everything dominated by judgment and by atonement. So if you if you point to the bottom of these uh, pillars, you'll say, that's of brass. That speaks of judgment. The top of them is of silver. That speaks of atonement. So that we have judgment and atonement both tied together here. You fall it on down, you'll find other things that are indicated. But let's uh, pick up with verse 14. It says, The hangings of the one side of the gate shall be fifteen cubits. You see in verse 15 you have a gate. That's right in front of this fence. And we told you a little bit ago that the gate speaks of the fact that Christ is the one and only way. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Let me give you the picture. This gate here was the only way into this court. And into this court, you had to come by the way of this gate. And God's presence was inside the Holy of Holies. That's where His Shekinah glory dwelt. That's why the Bible says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father where the Father's presence is, His glory is, but by me. You have to go through that gate. You have to go by the brazen altar. You have to go through the door. You have to pass by the golden candlestick which represents Christ as the light of the world. Have to pass by the table of showbread, which represents Christ as the bread of life. You have to go by the altar of incense, for everything that's made fragrant in the sight of God is on the basis of the fragrance of Christ. Then you have to lift up the veil and go in, not without blood, because everything is sanctified by the blood of Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You see, all the gospel truths in the New Testament are borne out in this Old Testament tabernacle. And... It, it would, we studied it in detail before, and I'm trying to give you just uh, some reminders of what we studied. And this gate is the way into God's presence, just as Christ was the way into God's presence and is the only way. I want you to notice uh, down in verse uh, 19, if you will. We won't have time to just keep on reading all of it. But verse 19, it says, All the vessels of the tabernacle and all the service thereof, and all the pins thereof, and all the pins of the court shall be of brass. You see these pins, or we'll call them tent staves, driven into the ground outside of this court? All these pins were of brass. See that? And they were driven into the earth. And the strength of this whole construction... Let me give you this in closing. I realize you're tired and time is about gone, but look. 
The strength of this whole construction depended upon this brazen pin driven deep into the ground and extended out of the ground. And what does this typify? That Christ represents going down into death and bearing the judgment of our sins and dying on the cross and also resurrected, coming out of the ground. So the pen there represents the death and resurrection of Christ. And upon the strength of Christ's death and resurrection stands all the security and the construction and the holding together of everything that applies to our salvation. It's in the earth and out of the earth. It speaks of death and resurrection. And these pens were of brass. There were linen cords. You see those cords that go from the pens to the top of those pillars? Those were linen cords. You know what they represent? The strength by which all things are held together in Christ's righteousness. You see, we would not have any salvation apart from Christ's righteousness. 